This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The CDC has revealed that five children have now died as a result of a mystery outbreak of hepatitis in kids. More than 100 cases have been found across 25 states and territories. We go in-depth what's causing the outbreak and how worried should parents be. L.A., the land of freeways. <laughs> but now one local state lawmaker wants to stop their expansion. We'll talk with her. And the war in Ukraine sees more heavy fighting in the east. We will get the latest update from there. We'll also talk with somebody who lives in Kiev who uh, never left. Uh, and we'll talk to her about life during the war. Uh, squabbling, fighting in Sacramento. Looks like it's delaying gas rebates for all of us. And then at the end of the show, we're going to talk about Star Trek because every once in a while I book a segment. Uh-huh. <laughs> they let me they let me pick one, and this is the one I've picked. And you've been waiting all week for this. Yes, because it's a great time to be a Star Trek fan. Okay, so we will just have to wait. Yes, <laughs> just a little bit. So patience. End of the show. <laughs> yeah, we begin though with word from the CDC of a deadly outbreak of hepatitis affecting children. Joining us now is Dr. Danielle Fisher, Chair of Pediatrics at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Uh, how concerned should parents be? Because the CDC, as you know now, is uh, sort of putting out the alert for doctors to be on the lookout for this. Yeah, um, it's really concerning, but it is incredibly rare. So I want to make sure that, that parents aren't, aren't freaking out that their kids are going to all of a sudden contract hepatitis. It's a, it is a very, very rare um, thing that they're seeing. However, it is worrisome, and some of these kids have gotten very sick. Uh, a few have died, and a couple have needed liver transplants, so it's pretty serious. And is it uh, sounding the alarm because we're, it's, it's so rare, but we're seeing this kind of an uptick, we're seeing these kind of numbers, and it should be way less than this, so something's going on. They need to figure out what. That's exactly right. And usually the culprit is a virus. Um, in this case, they're also postulating that um, the virus that they found so far in most of the kids who have it, but not all, it's called adenovirus. They're also postulating that there could be a role for COVID-19, perhaps having caused a previous infection, and then that you know the child's immune system is a little weaker when adenovirus comes along, but they're not quite sure yet what's causing it. Yeah, and I was going to say, because this is something, by the way, we should point out, it is not just occurring in the U.S. They're seeing these cases, rare though they may be, uh, around the world, many other countries. So one does have to ask oneself, what has changed to bring this about, right? That's exactly right. And one thing is that, um, you know, a lot of our kids have been in, indoors and away from other people during the pandemic. And now that we're back out in the world and, and really you know, taking masks off, we're seeing surges of viruses um, that we haven't seen in a couple of years. And maybe our kids are, are just having a harder time responding to that. Uh, but it definitely does seem like it's present all around the world. So we really do want to be paying attention to it. Which of the theories makes the most sense to you as they sort of investigate? I saw one doctor quoted saying, you know, even uh, COVID can, can you know, raise the, some of these liver enzymes levels a little bit, but usually you should be able to fight it off. But, but with these kids, like you said, some of them are getting really, really sick. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that any of the theories do sound plausible, and I, I'm, I'm not willing to rule out COVID-19 as a co-infection um, or, you know, possible reason for this. It'll be interesting to see going forward. Um, we certainly hope they find something out soon, and, um, you know, at least we can tell people to be on the lookout. Well, talking about being on the lookout, what should parents be on the lookout for in their kids? So um, the, the hepatitis um, makes kids very, very sick. Uh, it usually involves uh, things like extreme fatigue, 
abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea, and jaundice, which is a yellowness of the skin and the eyes. So a constellation of those symptoms would be something for parents to be on the lookout uh, and also physicians who are seeing these kids to be on the lookout. How fast does that all happen and does it happen all at the same time? You know, it depends on the case and the kid, but yes, it does happen on a relatively quick basis. Now, there are other things um, that will cause, like stomach flus, viral stomach flus that go around that will cause vomiting and diarrhea. But really what we're, um, what we're seeing with these kids is that they're extremely sick. They're actually sick relatively quickly, and, um, you know, it's something that isn't just indolent and creeps along over time. So really parents are going to know when they look at their kid that their kid isn't, is really not doing well. And if it's a household with, say, many children, if one child seems to be uh, showing signs of this uh, infection of hepatitis, how concerned should parents be about the other kids in the house? I mean, I would be very concerned about all the other kids in the house. Um, I haven't heard uh, yet of any familial links, but obviously anybody who's exposed to this virus you know, could be at risk. So I think that, you know, if, if your child gets sick and has vomiting and diarrhea and doesn't really seem to pick back up in 24 hours, definitely reach out for help uh, because this is where we want to be very cautious. Dr. Danelle Fisher, Chair of Pediatrics, Providence St. John's in Santa Monica. Some lawmakers and officials are saying it is time to curb the never-ending expansion of freeways across California. I know it sounds incredible, doesn't it? Joining us now to talk about her bill currently working its way through the legislature is Assemblymember Christina Garcia of Bell Gardens. Christina, thanks for being with us. And I got to tell you, I was telling Mike during the commercial break, I love saying your name with Bell Gardens because it sounds so poetic. Christina Garcia of Bell Gardens. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great. It's a big, great you. title for a book. It really would. Okay. Uh, freeways. Uh, it almost sounds like something Californians, on the one hand, would love to have happen, you know, less freeways. On the other hand, we kind of say, wait a minute, without the freeways, how do we, you know, get to the supermarket? So tell us about the bill and why you think it's necessary. Uh, this bill doesn't get rid of the freeways we currently have, and that's a discussion that some people are having, but this bill says that we're not going to expand or widen freeways in disadvantaged communities for both health impacts, air quality impacts, climate change impacts. Uh, and the reality is, I think our gut instinct, we've been led to believe that doing a freeway widening somehow eases congestion. But the reality is that research now tells us that it only invites more traffic. Yeah, it bounces back pretty quickly, right? And we've learned that at least a few times now that uh, there's a period where it looks a little better. But then the gridlock returns, as we all know, um, especially listening to this station. It's back within like six months or a year just to how it was before. You can't get anywhere. Yeah, exactly. And so the reality is that we have to find better ways for to help move people and better ways to help move goods. I live off of the 710 freeway. It's a good movement corridor. And the best way to let those goods move is to get us out of our cars and into public transportation. But also the closest like light rail or metro rail to me is seven miles away. Uh, and so we're not getting out of those cars at six is two hours to use the bus otherwise. Uh, and so if we, if we know that it doesn't help with congestion. It displaces low-income communities of color mostly. And so our policies unintentionally are targeting a vulnerable community out there in the middle of a housing crisis. It doesn't make sense to me that we continue with the status quo. 
You know, and, and what you say, by the way, is, is not only true, but it has been shown all over the world. There have been countless studies, and we've, we've touched on some of these over the years on the show. In many parts of the world where they study, you know, expanding freeways and you know, doing all kinds of things in the hopes of, they think, reducing traffic. But what it does is it encourages more people to go out and buy cars or go into their cars and drive because they figure, well, there are more freeways and there are more lanes. We may as well go for a drive. That's exactly what happens, which I, I think it's not how we think about it initially, but when we stop and think about it, it makes sense. And that's what we've seen. I also lived near the 105 freeway. It, it was built in my lifetime and it was supposed to help ease congestion. And we see how, you know, it definitely eased congestion for a couple of years, but uh, it's full of traffic now, as are all the other freeways that uh, connect to it. So what's to guarantee that part one of this leads to part two? You say don't expand this freeway or that one. Okay. But how do you get the public transit closer, to your point, you know, one mile instead of seven, and uh, B, where people want it to go? Because if that doesn't happen, then they're still going to get in the car. No, exactly. And so the same dollars that are set aside, whether it's at the federal level, at the state level, or through our transportation agencies, can be then redirected to things like light rails, you know, in these communities out there and in communities that are actually likely to use it, uh, going into places that we're likely to go towards. And so I think if you follow the traffic, it's very clear where we're going. And so we can plan accordingly to help people get out of the cars. Some of these light rails need to run near or adjacent to our highways out there. So it's an alternative that makes sense to me. Those would also be good working class jobs for our union brothers and sisters out there. Uh, and so it doesn't have to be an either or. We could have a uh, a plan that makes more sense with the resources that we have, that eases congestion, that eases our air quality issues, and puts people to work and moves them faster. Assemblymember Christina Garcia of Bell Gardens. Thanks to Ukraine, latest on the war. Joined again from the western city of Lviv by journalist Phil Itner. Phil, thanks for being back with us. Uh, let's start with this uh, steel plant in Mariupol, which all eyes still on this and have been for quite a while. And the question has always been, you know, how long can, can the Ukrainian forces there hold out? What do we know about what's going on there and if there's been any more of these evacuations that sometimes are promised by the Russians, but then they don't always follow through? Yeah, uh, you know, actually, and also sometimes they set up uh, evacuations and then it turns into an attack. Uh, they use that as a kind of a, a pretext for an actual attack. So they have been holding on for quite some time. We've had a release um, uh, recently, uh, but the uh, the defenders inside that steel plant, they're holding on. At the last notice, they were still there. It's a, it's a pretty strongly defensible position because it was built uh, with an awful lot underground just for this kind of uh, situation. The Soviet Union built it, and uh, there's almost an entire city beneath it. So uh, they have been holding out for quite some time, but there is still you know word coming from those defenders that they are running out of food and supplies. So um, they, they, they keep saying that it's imminent that it might fall, but they keep holding out. Well, but but for all intents and purposes, don't the Russians pretty much control that city? They do. They do. They pretty much do control uh, the city of Mariupol. It's one of the major port cities in Ukraine. And um, they, you know, even got to the point where, where Putin himself said, you know, don't assault it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's going to remain a thorn in their side until they can finally take it. Um, which, you know, it's just one of those things in this war where the Ukrainians just 
are so tenacious, uh, they keep holding on. So we look ahead to next week, Monday, right, for this uh, victory day that the Russians want to celebrate. And the question becomes, how do they try and, and mark that? And what do they say they've done or what can they claim as their victory? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of speculation going on about what is going to possibly be announced uh, on uh, May 19th, or I'm sorry, May 9th. It can't be understated, uh, or overstated rather, how important that day is on the Russian calendar. You know, the, the, the Second World War, the, what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War, is very much still living memory for them. Many of their, uh, the veterans are still alive, but even those who aren't alive, uh, still, I mean, the family carry on the legacy of that war, um, very close to their hearts. So, um, it has in the past been used as a day for making major announcements. There's been speculation about what might be pronounced on that day, and a lot of talk that it might actually be a declaration of war, which would allow Vladimir Putin to call up uh, uh, the uh, reservists and conscripts uh, and, uh, and uh, initiate a, a much more uh, over-encompassing mobilization. In addition to that, uh, they, they do expect that they might flex their uh, military might with some uh, uh, display of hardware that, uh, that that might be new on the scene that uh, have been speculated about but uh, hasn't actually been seen. And there's some folks saying that that might happen as well. But um, we are clearly seeing a ramping up of activity here in Ukraine. I mean, even here in Lviv, we had an attack a couple nights ago that knocked out power and water. And that's just something that hasn't happened here. Uh, and that is that was on a night where a number of different cities around Ukraine were hit. So they are definitely the Russians are uh, ramping up things in the in the run up to May 9th. Well, and the Victory Day concept, doesn't that really feed into the Russian narrative, a, a false one, that that the, the reason they are having this war or, they, or as they put it, a special military operation right in Ukraine is to take care of the Nazis, they say, who are running the country, that fits in with their Victory Day narrative, which was about their victory over the Nazis in World War II. So now they're kind of carrying it forward, right? It is, It is as with so many things in this country, there are complexities and layers and histories that have been manipulated by a number of different powers, including people internally here within Ukraine, uh, and, you know, which narrative is the truth gets muddied because, of course, you know, uh, as the old saying goes, history is written by the victors. Now, the, the, the complexities are also added to the fact that, you know, in the Second World War, it was the USSR that fought against Nazi Germany, and the USSR was composed in no small part by Ukraine. So many of the Ukrainians are actually the ones who built, who bore the brunt of the Second World War. At the end of the day, Russia, as the Soviet People's Republic of Russia, was occupied only by a very small percentage. Most of the fighting, actually, in the Second World War was on Ukrainian territory and Belarusian and, and some other uh, areas, Poland in particular. Um, but, you know, who, who owns the narrative of the Second World War is kind of in dispute, but and the word coming from Moscow is yes that the that what was left behind when the when the the uh, not when the Nazis occupied this territory is that they took in um, uh, sympathetic Ukrainians who would have fought with the devil uh, to 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 uh, strike back at Stalin's USSR 
uh, because he had done all these atrocious crimes in recent history in the run-up to the Second World War, that is being employed by Moscow in their narrative, and we see it both from Kremlin and in mass media, which is ultimately controlled by the Kremlin, in that there are still Nazis here. Well, now there are far-right elements here. But again, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but I'll say it again. When Ukrainians say they're Ukrainian nationalists, that is, a, that is the, you know, us in the West, in the English-speaking world, we, we hear red, you know, they're, they're, you know, alarms and sirens go right. off when we hear right. nationalism. But Ukrainians mean they really just want a nation. That's right. what they mean when they say Ukrainian nationalism. Phil Littner, they're in Lviv. Phil, thanks. But now let's go to uh, Ukraine's capital city, Kiev. Joining us uh, live is Natalia. Uh, she's a PR professional and has never left that uh, city. And Natalia, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Uh, as Mike uh, just said uh, in our last segment, we uh, talked with uh, Phil Littner, who we hear from on a pretty regular basis. And he is in Lviv, in the western part, of course, of, of Ukraine. What is the situation now like in the capital? Hello, hello. Thanks uh, for inviting me. Th- thanks for giving me this time. Uh, speaking about the Kiev, uh, the situation here is much more quiet and much more safe than uh, it was uh, two weeks ago, for example. Uh, but we cannot uh, predict what will be tomorrow and what will be uh, after the 9th of May. Yeah, tell me about what your what your worries are, what your thoughts are about what could be happening in the next couple of days, because everyone is watching May 9th, and we were discussing that just a few minutes ago as well. But but how do you see what what could happen, or what the Russians could try and do on, on that date? Uh, speaking about my personal opinion, it's really difficult to predict because it was really difficult to predict that uh, the war in uh, 21st century is possible. And the same is about the, the next week. Uh, we don't know what can be expected by Putin, what can be expected by uh, the Russian army. Uh, so for sure, it will be very difficult situation in the Easter of our country. Uh, but I think that... Uh, all the Ukraine, all our territory in risky. Uh, I don't want to speak about the nuclear war or something like that, but the situation is really difficult and uh, it's really difficult to predict. I mean, uh, is that something that that many Ukrainians are, at least, you know, in, in private, worried about or talking about this this unthinkable nuclear option? Uh, it's something that uh, Russian representatives speak about. They speak about uh, this every day. And sure that uh, they, they, they don't say that it can be tomorrow, but uh, it's difficult to understand what are their minds and uh, what dangerous things they can make. You mentioned how it's quieter now where you are, which obviously must be a relief. But I wonder how much you've been able to actually feel that knowing still, like you said, that things could change or that that air raid siren could could sound again pretty much at any time. Yes, you know, absolutely. Each time that when the air raid siren uh, in Kiev, it happens around three or even five times a day. Uh, it's a scary it's because we are usually going to the uh, refuges or we are going to shelters. It's uh, difficult to, to live our no- normal life. Uh, it's difficult to do business because each second uh, air siren can be and uh, it, it can be bombed again. 
You know, when you, when you say difficult to live a, a normal life, I, I would suspect it's hard to live a normal life, period. But I am curious, do people in, in where you are, for example, in, uh, in Kiev, uh, do people, I don't know, go out on, on weekends? Do they, do they go to parties still? Are people getting married? Are they, you know what I mean? Are they, are they going through as best they can the normal activities of, of life? Uh, no, it's uh, not about the parties. It's not about uh, having fun. You know that the city is silent because uh, even people are scared to speak loudly. Uh, people mm, don't want to have fun because uh, even if we are in a rather safe place, we are thinking about our relatives, we are speak- thinking about our friends in Mariupol, we are thinking about our uh, friends in Kherson and uh you know that even if we go to take a coffee, uh, we know that we spend money for volunteer. We spend money to help business goals going on. And uh, you know that, uh, for example, me, I work my usual job for eight hours a day, and then I go volunteering. I go uh, on up. Uh, our informative front to speak to, to speak with media to help media find uh, good speakers to find good experts to uh, share the truth about Ukraine to share the truth about the uh, the situation that in Kiev or in other cities now and uh, we help by humanitarian aid we uh, help with delivery and uh, you know that almost everyone who I know. Uh, almost everyone is volunteering now. It's just—it's not just a money help. It's help with transportation, humanitarian, medical help, IT army, etc., etc. And you know, uh, I can ever imagine what wonderful people are around me. The big issue now is to be ok, to save normally, uh, to help our economics. We work as usual during the days and volunteering during the nights and. Uh, it's very difficult because each time we, each second, we are thinking about our people in Mariupol, in uh, other cities that can that are bombed each second. Natalia in Kiev, thank you so much for speaking to us. We hope you stay safe and uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Well, local gas prices, they have been going back up in recent days after hitting record highs in March of more than $6 a gallon on average. That triggered lawmakers and the governor to promise rebates of between 200 and 400 dollars to help but they're fighting about it they can't figure out how to do it so we sit and wait and you may not see any of these rebates anytime soon with us now is chris haney executive director of the california budget and policy center so chris uh, let's start with that last point for people who heard these original plans uh, you know about a month ago or, or more than that now and were saying oh great this is going to help me right now with these gas prices I'm paying. We've since gone down and back up, and we're still nowhere close to these coming our way anytime soon. Yeah, what's what's happening here is that the governor proposed a plan that would use uh, a way of delivering the cash assistance to people that hasn't been tested or tried before, rather than using the system he used last year to provide stimulus payments to people. And that's created a lot of confusion about how that would work, how fast could it happen, and that's largely what's driving the delay. Had he actually just proposed 
doing something like what he did in 2021, I think we would have already received uh, already seen legislative action. Why do you think people try to always come up with what they think are brilliant ways of doing things in a new way, which turn out to not be brilliant and not really that new and actually don't work? That's a good question. I, you know, I think, I think, you know, the, 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 the reality is that politicians tend to hear from the squeaky wheels. So when, you know, a few people don't receive something that they thought they would receive, you know, they tend to hear about that a lot. And so then they think about, okay, what's a new way to do it that might be better. But we, we delivered over $12 billion in aid to Californians last year using the state's tax code based on people's incomes so that we made sure the people who were harmed by rising prices and inflation and the pandemic received the aid they need and doing so via you know, a rebate plan that is based on whether you own a car or not has a whole array of inefficiencies uh, that just don't make sense if you're trying to do something quickly. So he, the governor, though, is saying, no, 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 it's not my fault by trying to put this through the DMV and get the money out that way tied to to the vehicle registration. He says, you know what, the way that we had done it before, that would even take months because that would go through the franchise tax board. That's what the Democrats in the legislature want to do. And it's uh, tax season anyway, so they're delayed. So my plan, he says, would work better. Is, is he is that not right? So wh- whose plan would get the money here fastest? Because <laughs> that's what people want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we live in a big state and trying to get uh, cash assistance out to millions of Californians is a complex thing to do. And to do that well, uh, it needs to be based on their income levels and where we know that. And we and the best way to do that is via the tax system. But last year, the, at this time, the governor and the legislature agreed to a deal that people were receiving cash assistance as early as late summer. And that's pretty fast for the state. Um, Starting up a new system where we don't know how it would work is not going to be happening any time sooner than that. And so even if that sounds, you know, like people would rather have the assistance sooner, the reality is, is that the the state's fastest venue is to use its existing mechanisms and by late summer, people could start to receive some checks and then it would work through the fall. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of, of people listening to this are thinking, you know, how is it that whenever the government or in this case, the state, you know, wants to get money from us, they always manage to be able to do that in a really fast, efficient way. <laughs> but when it goes the other way around, there are always stumbling blocks. Well, you know, I, I, I challenge the premise of that. You know, we all spend a lot of prep time filing our taxes, you know, over a period of months. And we know April 15th is coming a year in advance every year, right? What we're talking about here is a new idea of providing rebates to help people deal with rising costs of living, gas prices, inflation overall. And to do that quickly, uh, you know, we it makes sense to use the, the existing system that we have and being able to do so within a matter of three or four months for a state of 40 million people is pretty good. As they go back and forth over the delivery system for the money, they're also going back and forth over the actual plans. Do we have any indication as to who's in the lead right now? Which of these we may see more than one of the others? We don't, actually. And I, and I think they're in an impasse. You know, the governor is, is doubling down on that he wants this to be based on whether you own a car or not. The legislature is saying, no, we want it to be based on your income level and make sure we can get the assistance into the hands of the people who are most negatively harmed by rising prices. Um, and they're going to have to work this out over the next few weeks. The governor has a budget proposal due out in mid-May, and 
So I think it will get resolved, but you know, it's there's not a it, it, there doesn't seem to be a near term solution right now, but it'll be pretty it'll be happening pretty soon. What about some other states? Uh, are other states doing this, and are they doing it better or worse? Most states are doing it worse, unfortunately. Uh, a lot of states are doing this via things like a gas tax holiday or a gas uh, a, a suspension of gas tax taxes overall, and that basically makes sure that you're undermining the funding that generally goes to transportation infrastructure, and California has lots of needs in that space as well as other states. And it doesn't actually go to the people who need it most, which are low and middle income folks who are struggling just trying to make ends meet. So you're far better trying to get the aid based on people's income so that you're making sure that the folks who are most harmed by rising prices have the assistance they need. Things like whether you own a car or the gas tax, that's going out to people who are wealthy, who have luxury vehicles, who may not need the assistance. Uh, it just has lots of inefficiencies to it. And then it's actually, in some cases, like with the gas tax, it's funding that goes to other needs that we don't want to undermine along the way. Chris Haney, Executive Director of the California Budgets and Policy Center. Chris, thanks. The FDA putting strict new limits on using the J&J COVID vaccine because of the newest data showing uh, blood clots developing in a very small number of people who get that uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Officials say the shots should only be given to people who cannot receive a different one, the Pfizer or Moderna, or those who specifically say, that's the one I want, I want the J&J. So we are joined now by Dr. John Swartzberg, an expert in infectious diseases and clinical professor emeritus at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us, I can see how what's happening with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine might feed into the narrative of those who are either anti-vax or they still are waiting for, I don't know what, some kind of information uh, about vaccines before they get one. And I can see this fitting into their narrative that you see, these are new vaccines and they're not fully tested and now we're finding out bad things about them. Yeah, um, that's one way to look at it, but it's certainly not the way I would look at it or any of my colleagues would. Here's why. The, the complication that we're talking about with J&J's vaccine um, is this blood clotting problem. And very, very early on with the use of the vaccine, not long after it was released in February of 21, um, our surveillance picked up that there was a slightly higher incidence of this blood clotting problem after J&J compared to what we would have seen with nobody getting a vaccine. When I say a slightly higher instance, we're talking about less than four people per million compared to a little less than one person per million who hadn't received the vaccine. So we're talking about a difference of not quite three people per million. So it's a teeny number, but that teeny number was picked up by the surveillance that we did very quickly after J&J was introduced within a very few months. There is nothing new now about what the FDA is saying. All the FDA is saying is that further surveillance on J&J shows that those numbers that we picked up very early in 2021 are still holding. So it's still that same difference of about three more cases per 100,000. So based upon that, the advice would be that even though it's very rare, take an mRNA vaccine that we know works very well and doesn't have that complication. 
if we didn't have those other two, if we didn't have the mRNA vaccines, would J&J still be considered a good shot, given the instance that we have this very small number of people? Absolutely. Um, the you know it's interesting with J and J when it first came out it looked it, it wasn't performing as well as the mRNA vaccines, but more recent data in the last few months shows that the the immunity you got from that J and J injection was actually giving very good protection against serious disease like hospitalization and deaths months later comparable to and in one study even a little better so if you got J and J. It gave you it gave you good protection against the really serious complications from COVID. Um, it's important for people to also remember about J and J is that if you got the J and J vaccine, almost all the times that we've seen clotting occur in these three to three and a half cases per one million has occurred within the first two weeks after getting the, the shot. So if you got the vaccine a month ago, or if you got the vaccine a year ago, you have nothing to worry about in terms of a complication, this complication from the vaccine. So I'm curious, uh, because the numbers are, when you put it the way you put it, uh, it really is kind of interesting, you know, one per million as opposed to say, you know, three or four per million. Uh, And I wonder if the FDA didn't err in making a much bigger deal out of that number this week, because the the clear tone of the FDA's message and the way it was certainly perceived, I think, by the public was that this is a problem and maybe it's rare, but stay away from this vaccine unless, you know, there's nothing else you can do, then take it. And And it sounds, by listening to the numbers the way you're describing it, that kind of sounds like an overreaction. You know, I think you're spot on. Um, I read the FDA announcement yesterday, and then I had to reread it and put it in perspective um, of what I have understood following the story from the very beginning. Um, I think it could have been written in a different way, emphasizing different aspects than they did. It was written very much as a memo that people who know a lot about it would immediately understand it and see clearly what the what the nuanced issues are. But this was the same memo that went out to the general public who doesn't live and breathe all these issues. Yeah, it could have been done much better. Dr. John Schwartzberg, expert in infectious diseases, clinical professor emeritus, UC Berkeley. There's a whole big introduction here, but this is about the fact that there were three Star Trek franchises yes. going at the same time. We're back to like, you're, think you're back excited. to the 90s, because yeah. like Next Generation was just ending. Yes. Deep Space Nine had a couple years in. Yes. Voyager was starting. Uh-huh. It was like Star Trek Central. Yes. We're back to that. Yes. And, and and you're watching all of them, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I haven't gotten to the animated ones yet. Oh, okay. But I think Scott Mance has. He's an LA-based film critic, Star Trek expert, fan, host of the podcast Enterprise Incidents. So these are all streaming on Paramount Plus, uh, the uh, the streaming app that used to be the CBS one. Scott, let's start with last night's first. That's the new one, uh, Strange New Worlds, because I think I have my mom convinced, a friend convinced, and almost I got Charles convinced to maybe almost, watch almost, this thing. Almost, Because yeah. I've been saying it's back to, like, classic Star Trek, and that's in more ways than one. That is absolutely true. First of all, Charles and Mike, thanks for having me on. And, uh, yes, yeah, Strange New Worlds is the latest And of all of these newer Star Trek shows that have been on Paramount Plus, like Discovery and Picard and Prodigy and uh, Lower Decks, 
Strange New Worlds is the best of the bunch. And the reason for that is because it is a return to form. If you are like me and you grew up with Star Trek in the early 70s, if you were part of that syndication generation that fell in love with the, the Enterprise and Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and going to a new planet every week and then continuing that tradition with Star Trek The Next Generation with Picard and Riker in the, in the 80s and the 90s, then this is true to, well, true to form for Star Trek because it's a new adventure every week. It's episodic. It's not like a season long arc like Discovery and Picard have been. And it really feels like good old Star Trek. And it's about time, like positive messages, great characters. Anson Mount is terrific as Captain Pike, who was originally played by Jeffrey Hunter in the very first Star Trek pilot, The Cage, which never never aired until the menagerie in, in the original series. Yeah. Now, now by I way, understand all of those things. Now I'm going to say, I don't yes, know of course. Does. No, no, no. Oh, 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 okay. Now, now, okay. All right. Now you've thrown down the, the gauntlet because I want to tell you something that they're going to surprise you. Yes. Right. When I was, are you growing, a secret mega fan? When I was growing up, I had a, those old posters of the original Star Trek where Mr. Spock still looked green for some reason, even though he wasn't on the show on my wall in my bedroom. So there. There. So there. See, oh, I love I'm it. very proud. <laughs> Bring it. Makes it. me very Bring happy. It. Yeah. Oh, I wish I still had it. It's probably worth a lot of <laughs> money. Auction that off on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 the the original Star Trek, and you're quite right. I mean the original Star Trek, well, there were really little morality plays that happened to be set into the future and happened to be sort of a science fiction based show. But they were really about social issues that yeah. were very difficult for television in the 60s to deal with. Uh, race relations, for example, which they dealt with on Star Trek, but they wouldn't dare touch on a regular television show, right? So Star Trek, Star Trek was groundbreaking for so many reasons. You know, you got to keep in mind, 1966, when the series premiered, nothing like this had ever been attempted before on broadcast television, you know, with the, the, the sets and the production design and the visual effects, which at the time were cutting edge. And, and you had, it was a serious science fiction show because otherwise you had to watch Lost in Space, oh, which, God. Was, for, which <laughs> was for kids. Yeah. But you're right. You're right in pointing out that the original Star Trek show, like there were, it was a, an action adventure every week, but in those stories were, were messages that were mostly subtle, sometimes a little over the top. Uh, and I know, you know, which episodes, so you know what I'm talking about, but, you know, they would, they would look at the Cold War, they would look at racism and tolerance, they would look at Vietnam, uh, you know, they were, they were dealing with so much. And, it was disguised as this science fiction action adventure, but you had these aspirational characters with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. I mean, the three of those of those guys together were, were so great. And William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly just had great chemistry. Fortunately, Roddenberry, who created the original series, was also the creator of The Next Generation. And he had passed away in 1991 when the show was in its, I think, its fourth year. And the shows after that, like Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise, you know, they all have their merits. But the newer shows like Discovery and certainly Picard and, and uh, Prodigy, you know, they, they had the word Star Trek on them. But they're, 
I just wasn't feeling like they really got the heart and soul and the spirit of Star Trek. And I felt like something was missing. As a diehard fan, I'd watch it because I felt like it was my, my duty to <laughs> do so. To watch it. If like, there's Star like, Trek, it must be watched, right? <laughs> yeah, but guys, I'm telling you, like, I was like, where's the Star Trek that feels like a Star Trek show that captures the spirit of Star Trek? And with Strange New Worlds, I've seen the first five episodes of Strange oh, New Worlds. The first one premiered last night on, on Paramount Plus. But, and I liked it very much. But I have to say the second episode and the third episode are really where Strange New Worlds is really like finding itself. And, and you know, those two shows, I have to say, like next week and the week after when you see episodes two and three, you're really going to oh. love them. Oh, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have said that. Now, now we're not going to see Mike for the next two I weeks. I know, just waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, real quick before we go, because Charles was, was questioning off the air, do they pull it off? You know, it still looks, you know, 60-ish enough, but the ship's updated. You know what I mean? Like the tricorder's still boxy and the communicator's old, but the ship looks new. Does that all work? Oh, absolutely. And that's the great thing about the production design and the set design and the costumes, because, you know, you have these like primary colors with the costumes that, that look like the original series a little, but it's very modern for 2022. You have the phasers and the tricorders, which if you look at them, yeah, they look just like all that stuff from the original series. But of course, it looks very modern. And the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, you have the colors and the reds and and it looks retro in some ways. But it looks amazing and very 2022 in, in other ways. So they are they are walking like the fine line between between paying tribute to the original series and making the show something new so that new Star Trek fans will watch Strange New Worlds, even if they have not watched the other Star Trek shows, any of them, and can, they could still discover Strange New Worlds and enter Star Trek with this new show and be like, yes, that is a Star Trek series. Scott Mann's LA-based <laughs> film critic. He's got the podcast Enterprise Incidents. Are you gonna watch? I, I'm yeah. yeah okay. Gotcha. And, and and may all of our listeners live long and prosper. Yes. Very yes. nice. Thank you. Great way to end for Friday.